We are actually finishing a series, and I know a lot of people have really enjoyed this series, but we're finishing a series called What Does God Want? Because it's not too difficult to answer that question, all right? We've exhausted it for three weeks. Um, but I want to go ahead and give you the scripture, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do something as a challenge, okay? Just, just, I'm going to challenge myself. Matter of fact, Corbett, you got your phone with you right there? I want you to bring out your timer, okay? I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to recap this thing in three minutes, okay? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a big challenge, okay? I'm going to recap it in three minutes. He's going to time me and see how I do. All right, here's the scripture, though. Let me do this first. Here's the scripture. As the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of what? Say it out loud. Glory of the Lord, right? And so what does he want? When we say, what does God want? Well, he wants to be glorified, right? Go ahead and start the timer. There you go. He wants to be glorified. And so we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about what does that look like? We believe God's on the move, and we believe that movement is driven by that answer to that question. And we've given you some things along the way. We've talked about the fact that his glory is greater than our story, right? That, that, if, that if you want to really be a part of the movement of God, you've got to understand that your story is too small, okay? Your glory is not tied to a movement, your glory and your story is too small a thing for you to give your life for and to live for. His glory is greater than our story. When we sign up to become Christians, every, every followers of Christ, every believer is a missionary. All right? It's not, it's not something that you can choose to do. It's something you're immediately enlisted to do. The moment you began to choose to follow Jesus, you became an ambassador. You became an ambassador for him. That's not something we choose to do. Now, we're, we can be a good one or a bad one. But that's, that's not something that we get to choose to do. It's automatic. It's, it's, it's his plan for us. Keep going. Last week, we started with this idea that the church, a church is always going to be less than the church, the kingdom of God, the collective church. Anything that God's going to do, he's going to do through all of God's people, the church. Whatever his plan is, he's going to do through all of God's people, the church. Not that I don't love Journey. It's not that I, I love our church, okay? But our church is not all that. You with me? All right, it's not. We are a local expression, one small local expression of the church of Huntersville, of the church of Lake Norman, of the church, the capital C church kingdom of God on the move in this region. That's just what we're part of, and we get to be a part of it. The kingdom we gave you this, uh, this illustration. The kingdom, what is it? Well, it's, it's whenever and wherever the king gets what he wants. What does he want? To be glorified. Okay, like, uh, this is like a little class time. You ready? What does he want? To be, to be glorified, right? So whenever and wherever that happens, the king gets what he wants. Man, I'm telling you, it's on the move. The movement's on the move. But there's an enemy to this. And believe it or not, its primary enemy is not the enemy, the devil, primary enemy to us understanding and keeping in mind the kingdom of God and being a part of the kingdom of God is our kingdom, right? It's, it's whenever and wherever we, you and I, spend our entire lives just trying to get what we want. That's the real problem. And here's how we talked about the kingdom at work. We want to see the king, go ahead and go to the next one, his rule and reign in every domain. Not just in every domain of our lives, but every domain of our lives where we live, learn, work, and play. Everywhere, everything that we can surrender to him is going to be what the king has, has rule and reign over. Why? Because everything, right? Everything the king touches, the king changes. Right? Man-made movements are a breeze. 
They're a small puff of air. Matter of fact, James calls it, when it comes to our story, a mist, right? A mist or a vapor. But guys, God's movement is a, is a hurricane. It changes the landscape. That's what the movement of God looks like. And I ended last week asking you this question. What would happen if God got what he wanted in your life? What would happen if God got what he wanted in us? How'd I do, Corbett? 3.30, not bad, not bad, not too bad. Maybe in line with how things are going to go today. Just letting you know. All right. Could have, could have mis, misspoke a little bit earlier how quickly we'll get done. All right. We have a lot to talk about today. But I wanted you to, I wanted you to hear that. I wanted you to understand that, that where we've come over the last couple weeks brings us to where we are today. That God is on the move. Right? And it is fueled by him getting what he wants. By the king getting what he wants. It's fueled by the power of the kingdom and the power and presence of the kingdom in our lives, where we live, work, learn, work, and play. I told you uh, every week we kind of shared with you parts of this. We want to remind you of the vision of our church because what we're teaching you is some of the training we give to churches, church planters, church leaders that are revisioning their churches to help them understand that they want to be a part of the DNA. They want to be a part of the foundation of the, of the right kind of church in order to be the church God's called them to be. And so for us, we talk about our vision is we are transformed people changing our friends' lives by absolute hope. That's our vision as a church, individually and then corporately together. It comes from this passage in 2 Corinthians. I think Don actually read this the first week. It means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has become. That's the absolute hope of Jesus Christ. That's what that is. And it says that all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. This gift of absolute hope has been given to us through Christ. We are the transformed people. And our job, our task that he's given us is to reconcile people back to him. That's what we're called to do. To help us see how this comes together, we describe it this way, okay, to churches when we're in training, to, to pastors and leaders when we're training them. Here's how we describe it just to help us get our minds sort of around the big picture before we dive into the specific uh, today. The first week, Pastor Don talked about the movement of God, which is the foundation, the DNA of the church. It is fueled by the kingdom. That's what we talked about last week, right? kingdom of God is fueled by the power of the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. But right here is where we're going to talk about it today. Its focus is the harvest. God's focus is the harvest. The foundation and the fuel has a focus. And that's the harvest. And I want you to notice the church is the result of that. All right? Now, here's two good things to just hear from this right out of the gate. The reason this is such good news to me as a pastor and a leader is that I'm not in charge of creating a movement of God in our, in our region. I'm not in charge of trying to create a movement. I'm, that's not my goal. That's not my charge to, to be given as a pastor and a leader of a church. I'm not charged to give. There's already a movement happening. There's already a movement worldwide, globally, of God moving in the midst of people. There's already a movement. I want to be a part of the movement. 
And I want it to be a movement that's fueled by him because the result is the church. And so sometimes, I want you to hear this, I'll take it just a couple minutes, sometimes hard for Christians, especially, depends on how long you've been a Christian, okay? There's always a, a magic number. Depending on how long you've been a Christian, sometimes we get really, really, really kind of like this idea that God's focus is actually on the church, okay? That God's primary issue is going to be dealing with the church, that God himself spends most of his time worried, consumed, uh, you know, focused on dealing with the church. And yet, it doesn't really make sense. Because I'll give you an example. We're, we're, we're a part of Journey Church today, you here and online. Um, I'm going to ask you a very simple question. How many of you at one time were lost, needing a savior, going to spend eternity in hell away from God, how many of you were lost? Just raise your hand. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Isn't that crazy? But now you're here, right? So don't you see that all of us at one time, we were the harvest before we were the church? Nod your head if you with me. And that's true for everyone. We were the harvest before we were the church. Which is why the church is always a result of God's movement powered by the king, powered by Jesus, focused on the harvest. Because the church is what brings glory to him. Everybody with me? All right, that's just to give you a big, big picture. Jesus spent lots of time talking about the kingdom of God. I shared about it last week. And he would always give the examples of how sometimes... The people of his day struggled to understand why Jesus came. They struggled to understand the movement. They struggled to understand the kingdom, not just how it looked, but what it was going to look like and what it was focused on and what it was going to do. And so sometimes Jesus would have to stop and just pause and teach about the harvest. So they all understood. The harvest is Again, don't, don't hear that demeaning your position, okay? We are sons and daughters of God. We are chosen, not abandoned. You guys with me? We are the redeemed. Guys, angels are jealous of the song we're going to sing in Revelation one day. Isn't that right in Revelation? Yeah, angels are, <laughs> angels are jealous that they don't get to sing the same song that we get to sing because it is special to be the redeemed of God. So don't hear that as a downplaying. Just hear it as an understanding that we are not, we are not, the focus. The focus is the harvest because the church is the result of God's move and his kingdom work. And so here's Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and tell you Luke 15 is going to be where we are in the majority of our time today. I do have something from Matthew I'll read. But Luke takes time to explain some several stories, several teachings that Jesus gave us about the harvest. Here's how this starts in Luke 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to Jesus to listen to Jesus teach. I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but let's go to the next verse. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was, what's the word? Say it out loud. Associating. Woo! Associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Okay, now go back to the verse before that, just so I can let you guys see this. Now, Luke does really well here what we all do, which is tell us categorically 
how the harvest was seen in Jesus' day from the Pharisees and the religious people, okay? Tax collectors and sinners. I call this worse and bad. Everybody with me? There's bad and then there's worse, okay? You have your own version of what is bad and what is worse. He just happens to be stating worst first, the worst thing. Again, tax collectors, I don't think you understand. I can't even take the time to explain how they viewed tax collectors, Jewish people who had betrayed their people, and then other deplorable, notorious sinners, okay? We all have our own, okay? Could be, could be whatever. Could be like Trump supporters, right? And other, you know, deplorable Republicans, you know? It could be socialists and other ungodly Democrats. It could be abusers and others who oppress people. Everybody with me? I've oftentimes told you when reading passages like this, I think more in our day today, especially for the church, it would be homosexuals, transsexuals, and others in the LGBTQ community because of how we categorize what's worse and what's bad. Everybody with me? Everybody has this. Don't get all stucky right now. I got a long way to go, okay? So everybody has, everybody has their own categories, fill in the blank. But this is the problem. This is the tension. The teachers and the religious leaders and the people of the church didn't like it. They didn't like that they came to hear Jesus teach. They didn't like it that Jesus associated with them. They didn't like that he even ate with them. So Jesus felt the need to teach them. So he tells them a story. Keep going. Sorry, I made you go back. Yep. Jesus tells them the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? He's asking a rhetorical question, by the way. He says, well, wouldn't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that's lost until he finds it? Jesus is basically saying, this is something you already know, guys. This is what, this is what a shepherd would do. And he goes on to say, keep going, he goes on to say, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Keep going. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors and say, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. And in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and who haven't straight away, right? This is Jesus just trying to, trying to make it as simple as possible in a way that they might get it, they might understand. He says, look guys, I know that you think the church and you think the religious people are the apple of God's eye and the, and the, 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 the crown jewel of his life and the cat's pajamas and God and his church are the peas and carrots, you know what I'm saying? Like, think of all the love songs and the words like, we're just, we're just all that to him. And we are a lot. He loves us. He saved you. But we forget that we were the one, right? Again, we, we forget that we were the one. Because now we're the 99. And he wants them to understand, guys, the shepherd doesn't call a party at the end of the day and say, whoo, 
I only lost one today. Nine, nine. You know, like, celebrate with me. Only one down. That's pretty good. Good odds. No, he doesn't do that. Because the shepherd will always leave the 99 and go after the one. And that's, this is a principle that Jesus says, you, you already understand this, so why wouldn't you understand this about your heavenly father? You're already part of the 99. You were the one that he joyfully picked up and brought home. That's who you were. But something happens when we get to be in this, uh, I, I put on here basically the charge is for us to see things differently. That's what Jesus was asking them to do. You need to see it differently. Why? Because they're sheep, right? And the sheep don't see anything the way the shepherd sees it. The sheep are consumed with their four foot patch of grass. Everybody with me? Like their four foot patch of grass and their heads down and that's all they see. And so the question I have sometimes that I, I feel like is important to ask is what is distracting you from seeing what God sees? What's distracting you from seeing the way the shepherd sees? I can tell you what's distracting me. I can tell you what's distracting me. Here's my four foot patch of grass, right? My family, my spouse, my kids, my parents, my siblings, my nephews, my nieces, my cousins. My neighbors, my acquaintances, my coworkers, my clients, my boss, my managers, my career, right? My car, my lawnmower, their car, kids' cars, tools, bikes, hobbies, interests, my paycheck, my savings account, my retirement account, my portfolio, my convictions, my social media presence, my social ID, my, my social IDs, my ideals my success, my failures, my fear, my faith. Sorry, that's my patch of grass. I don't know what your patch of grass looks like. Everybody with me? What, what distracts me from seeing differently? My kingdom. My kingdom. I am so overwhelmed and consumed with my kingdom that I can't even see the harvest. I can't even remember that I was the one who was lost and needed my shepherd who joyfully found me and brought me back home. And the first step of being a part of the movement and, and really being seeing this thing come to life in the church is we have got to remember that his eyes are fixed on the harvest. He is fixed on the one. He sees it differently. Jesus continues by telling another story, very similar, but he wants to bring value to this, to this idea in case they didn't quite get it with the sheep. He goes on to say this. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. That's to do with inheritance and being married and it's got a cool context, but then loses one. That's a problem. She, wouldn't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it. And he goes on to say, when she found it, wouldn't she call her friends and neighbors and rejoice with me because I found my lost coin? Something that had, has value in the context of 10. It, has, it, was a, it was a missing piece to the bigger picture. In the same way, there's a joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. 
And, and, and I'll just say this very quickly. This is an issue of value. I think this is the reason Jesus went down this path. He goes even further in a minute. But we have to be able to value everyone. We have to be able to value everyone. You with me? Now, here's the problem. We're distracted by our kingdoms. Yes, that's, I mean, that's understandable. But here's another problem is that we oftentimes don't understand how we are constantly valuing other people or devaluing other people, right? And I'm just telling you this because this is something that unless you've just, unless you've seen the ugly side of yourself lately, you just don't remember this. You don't, you don't remember the fact that quite honestly, you're constantly doing it with people. You're adding value to them or you're taking it away, right? You're adding value or you're taking it away, Right? Oh, look, they have the same, they have three kids just like me, plus three points, right? That's awesome. Plus one point. They have very similar, they're, they're very similar values. They love football. Yeah, minus one, they're a Falcons fan, right? <laughs> plus three, they're an Alabama fan. Minus two, minus two, they have completely different career paths. I barely understand it. Plus five, they own a boat. Right? Minus one, different, different ethnicity. Plus three, same job field. Minus three, they're a masker. Minus five, they're an anti-masker. Plus five, they're the same political affiliation as me. Minus 20, if they're opposite political affiliation. And guys, we don't really, I'll just be honest, you don't realize how much you do this until you're faced with a question like this. What will you sacrifice to value others the way God does? Because I'm telling you, the people that we, I mean, we just ding them away, man. Take away value, take away value, take away value. We disagree. I don't know how they think that. I don't know how they do that. I don't know how they choose that. I don't know how they live that way. We ding and ding and ding, and we do not see them the way God sees them. We do not see them as a creation of God destined to be in relationship with him. We do not see them as the lost sheep. We don't see them as the coin. We do not give people that value. It's not until we start thinking through what are my positions and preferences and opinions that I would have to sacrifice to really begin to value them the way God does. Maybe it is my political opinion. Maybe it is my social ideal. Maybe it is the fact that I, I'm not in the same career field. Don't, we do very little to, to, to bring us together in that thing, but I'm telling you, God loves this person. And he's created them in the image of God. They're created in the image of God. And they are destined to be a part, to, to, as wired, and to, to be in relationship with him. And it's our job to be reconcilers. It's our job to make sure they know the good news that changed our lives and is changing our lives. But we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to sacrifice the stuff in us that gives people value and takes away value. Again, it's all happening up here. You don't, nobody's walking around with a list until you start thinking about what you'd have to sacrifice in order to really see them the way God sees them. What happens is Jesus takes it further. He takes it further, faster, deeper. 
when he starts telling a story about a father and his two sons. Because this is all in the same context of Jesus feeling the need to teach them about the harvest. I'll give you the quick summary. I'm going to read a passage here, but it's just so much to read. I want you to go back and read it if you've never read it before. The father has two sons, and he's again giving this as a parable. One son, the younger son, wants his inheritance. He's like, I don't want to wait till you die. I want it now, and I want to leave, and, and I want to be gone. I don't want to live under your roof anymore. I don't want to live by your rules anymore. And the father says, okay. And he literally gives his son his inheritance and allows him to leave. And he takes off, and he goes off to another land, and he squanders it. That's a good King James Version word, right? Squanders. We don't use that word enough today. Squanders. He squanders it. But life is good for a while. And that's usually the case with most sin, right? It's good for a while. It seems like it's going to work out for a while. Until he is ultimately left penniless, alone, friends he had left. No options, no opportunities, no choices. And he's feeding pigs. Again, Jewish culture, huge problem with that. But that's where he is. He's feeding pigs. He's at the lowest of low in terms of categorically how they would see him as unclean. And he thinks to himself, you know what? Like servants at my dad's house live better than this. You know, they have, they have, they have three square meals a day and a, and a roof over their head. They're not feeding pigs. He's like, I'm going to go home and see if I can be a servant. And this is where I'll pick us up in the story. He says that we returned home to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with, just say those two words out loud, filled with what? Love and love and compassion. He runs to his son, he embraces him, and he kisses him. Keep going. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you, both heaven and, and you, and I'm, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And the father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Basically, the father restores his sonship to him. He restores the value to him. And he goes on to say, kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So let the party begin. This is Jesus' way of driving it as home as he possibly can. And he says, this relationship is as close to a father and a son. Talk about value. Talk about seeing it differently. This, this son who was gone, who was dead, who was lost but who still, who still mattered to the Father. And so part of what I wanted to say, that, that this is part of how we understand and engage the harvest, is we have to begin to pray specifically. Praying specifically does, does a couple things. And I want you to see this from the picture of the dad. Praying specifically does a couple of different things. It, it allows us, number one, again, I, I love the, the story. There's so many great things from it about the father restoring his son with value and honor. And, um, but I want you to see from the story that the father sees him coming, which means the father had his eyes on the horizon, right? 
His father, you know, I'm sure the father was busy. I'm sure the father had tons of other things to worry about. I'm sure he had lots of happening in his home. He still had an older son working in the, in the fields. He still had all this stuff happening. But his eyes were fixed on the horizon with the idea that one day, perhaps my son will return. One day, perhaps, he'll come to his senses and I'll see him. And this is what happens when we begin to pray specifically for the harvest. When we begin to see differently, when we begin to give the value to people as God gives value to people, they're not just these horrible, awful sinners who live unrighteous lives, who, who make a mockery of religion, who make a mockery of God with the way they act and the way they talk and the way they live. But we see them as a lost son. And we begin to pray specifically for John and for Susan, and we begin to pray for the, the, our coworkers and the people in our lives, and we begin to pray for them by name and specifically, God, would you turn their hearts? Would you let them see, taste and see that you are good? May they understand the miry pit that they're in and ask you for help. And the only way you see them coming as if you know where God's eyes are fixed, on the horizon, on the harvest. Now, here's where I have to put Jesus is the one who does this, so I have to give pause and help us understand that Jesus gives another illustration as part of this story because he wants, he wants the teachers and the Pharisees and the religious leaders to know that they're a part of this story, but they're not a part of the story in a way that's positive. And I call this basically beware. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a great question to ask. I need to ask this question. If God answered all your prayers from the past week, who would be reconciled today? It's a convicting question. Because maybe if you think about every prayer you prayed this week, it was all about your four-foot four patch of grass. It was all about your kingdom. And you never once prayed specifically for someone to come to Christ. Oh, you might have prayed a generic thing like, yeah, everybody just everybody who hates you loves you. Let's just do that. No, I mean specifically. You never once prayed that your son or your daughter or your siblings or your family or your friends or your coworkers or your acquaintances or the people in your circle, you never once specifically said, and yet God chose to answer your prayers this week. How many people would be reconciled today? How many people would be here worshiping Jesus for the first time? As a follower of Christ, as part of the family. I want us, again, because of how we struggle with this sometimes, I want you to see there is a warning that God gives us, and it's called beware of apathy and animus. I wanted to choose two A's because I'm kind of Baptist-y a little bit, you know? Apathy and animus, hatred towards the harvest. Because this is what Jesus says to the other son. The older son was in the fields working. He returned home. He heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? You can imagine that conversation. And he goes on to say, your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. And we're celebrating because of his safe return. 
says the older brother was. What's the word? Read it out loud. Mary. Yeah. Very different, very different response than the father, right? And he wouldn't go in, and the father had to come out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when a son of yours comes back after squandering, there's that word again, right? Squandering your money on prostitutes. Again, whatever your worst category is. That's his. You're going to celebrate? You're going to celebrate this by killing the calf we've been fattening? The father says, yeah, his father says, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. It's always been there. It's always been yours. Keep going. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And, he, and here's the problem with the older brother, and here's the problem where Jesus wants the religious leaders and the people of the church and the people who kind of think in the same way, they have trouble seeing differently, they have trouble giving value, they're not responding with compassion and love. They respond with anger. They respond with the worst categories like, how could you, God? Reminds me of Jonah and Nineveh, you know? Like, just like, they're not worth saving. And yet the father says, God, I'm just telling you, you've forgotten who you are as my son. Because if you remembered who you are as my son, you would know that we have to celebrate your brother. We have to be careful of apathy where we don't see the harvest. We don't see it. We don't care. There's lost people in our lives. There's people in our lives who are dying and going to hell. There's lost people in our lives trying to find hope for their life, and they're searching in every possible direction except God. And we don't care. We are as apathetic and as uncaring as the older brother. We're not looking on the horizon, expecting our brother to return. Why would he? Why would I want him to? And there could be animus, there could be anger and hatred there about how they've lived and what their choices are and what they're doing and whether or not they are worthy of God's grace. And the only way to get past that, the only way to get past it is you have to confess your impoverished, self-righteous position. This is the son, the eldest son, by the way, who says, I barely have anything. You've never, you've never given me anything that I've wanted. And I've slaved for you. He forgot who he was. He had an impoverished mindset. And his self-righteousness is what brought out that animus in him. You have to confess that, and you have to begin to start engaging, right? Engaging that abundant, grace-provided position. Psalm 23 says that when the Lord's your shepherd, you lack nothing. 
I have not want. You lack nothing. Everything I have is yours, is what the father says to the older brother, to the, to the eldest son. Everything I have is yours. Okay, you are a son and daughter of God. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ himself. That's who you are. Stop assuming that you get the crumbs of the table when you are at the table. You are at the feast with the king. That's who you are. Confess that self-righteous attitude and begin to engage the grace that you've been given. It's the grace that they so desperately need. The grace that you're experiencing is the grace they so desperately must have. We have to beware of the older brother. We have to beware of where we find ourselves sometimes in that position. How can we continue to do it better? Well, I'm going to give you another example where Jesus again taught on the harvest. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how we practically give you some tools at our church we use language that we hope helps. We hope, it, we hope it helps you to put some feet, hands and feet, to this challenge of seeing, it, seeing the harvest differently and, and valuing everyone and praying for people specifically. This is in Matthew. It says, Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news, right, of the kingdom. Whenever and wherever God gets what he wants and lives are changed and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Again, great word. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the crowd and he has compassion because he sees things as they are. He sees them as harassed and helpless. As a matter of fact, I, I went to a few other translations because I love this, this place where Jesus is seeing the root of things. He's seeing them weary and worn down, confused and helpless, distressed and dejected, confused and aimless. Do we see the harvest that way? Do we see those who are not children of God that way as dejected and distressed and helpless and harassed by the enemy? If we don't, we're not going to be filled with compassion. And then Jesus says these words. You may know these. Looks at his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest. Interesting choice of words. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers to his harvest field. The, the last point here is that we need to own, we need to own our circles. I'll talk about top five in a minute, but when you really think about this passage and you think about the harvest, I think, again, it, it's a good place to stop and think about the fact that we talk often about the church being his church, but we do not often talk about the lost as being his harvest. Everybody with me? We don't often, every, again, it's a, it's a position and it's a, it's a perspective. We talk about the church as, well, it's God's church. And there's all these horrible sinners out there. No, that's, that's his harvest. 
That's his harvest field. He is the Lord of that harvest, whether they acknowledge him or not. Which is why Revelation is going to go down exactly the way it says it's going to go down, which is every knee is going to bow and everybody's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All right? Even if they didn't do it here, they're going to do it because he's the Lord of the harvest. Right? But we just don't think that way sometimes. Like we, we're just not there sometimes in our head. We talk about his church. Oh, his church. He loves his church. He values his church. He gives compassion for his church. No. His compassion for the harvest, his harvest. So we have to own the way he owns it. We have to own our circles, our part, our position, if you will, the way he owns it. And the way we give this uh, sometimes in our training is like this. We call it a circle of responsibility, right? You must own the lostness in your circle. And everyone's circle, I talked about this last week, everybody's circle is different. There are different people in your circle than there are people in my circle. But we oftentimes give this to, to churches and organizations so they can begin to really begin to process, well, who's in my circle? There might be government leaders in my circle or friends and family or there's volunteer organizations in my circle. There's recreational interests that I share with people in my circle, sports teams, kids teams, you know, business networks, city leaders, the school, anyone really, right? They're in my circle where I live, learn, work, and play. This is my circle. God gave me responsibility with the people in my life. To see them as the harvest, as his harvest. To value them. To pray specifically for them. And engage them. Engage my circle. We call it top five, okay, because we wanted to make it personal. We've, we've, we've shared this years ago, and we stopped sharing it a lot, and here's the reason why. I want you to hear this, okay. We've gone to, we, we drew a circle around the eight-mile radius of the church, and we talked about the, the population and we talked about best guess of, of kind of like how many people kind of claim to be church going people. And, you know, between the, the 120 plus thousand that are in this eight mile radius of this church, our, our most generous of guesstimates is that there's about 89,000 who do not know God. So it's not hard for us to look and say, well, what's the harvest field look like? It's 89,000 people, men, women, children, 89,000. You know what happens when I say that number is a lot of times it can glaze over just like the news, you know, the news sometimes at night, everything's so horrible. You'd barely pick up on one thing specific because it's just all horrible. We don't get the numbers. It tends to overwhelm us. And so as a church, we just began to say, okay, yes, the harvest field, our circle of responsibility as a church is here in this circle. But individually as people, as part of the church, God's church, we have a, we have a circle of responsibility. And we said, we want you to name your top five. Who are they? Who are they? If you don't have them, I would, I would probably guess you need to pray that you would see differently. That you would figure out what it is to start valuing them the way God values them. Because I promise you, you have more than five in your life. I promise you. In your circle, there are more than five. The question is, do you know who they are? Who are your top five? 
Who are you praying for specifically? Who are you on the porch with, with the Father looking at the horizon going, I wonder if today's the day. I wonder if today's the day when I show up at work and she's going to say something. He's going he's gonna to make a text and finally, and finally be honest about the stuff he's struggling with. I wonder if today's the day. And we're on the porch with the Father. Yes, handling our business, doing the things we need to do, but we are gazing at the harvest just like he is. Who's your top five? I don't want you thinking about the 89,000. God's got it. Okay, that's the circle. That's our radius. He's going to use all of God's people. He's going to use all the churches in that radius, in that radius too, to do his work. But individually, we have a personal circle of accountability and responsibility. Who's your top five? Just top five. You can have a list as long as you want. Question is, do you know your five? Do you have that? And this is the time in which I just want to share it. This is the excuse that the majority of people struggle with when they get to this place of practically looking at the, at the people in their circle of who they are called to engage, who they're called to own the losses of, who they're called to share the good news with. And people are just like, Matt, you don't understand. Like, I am a mess. I am so jacked up. Like, like theology, blah, you know. Like, like answers to questions, don't have them. Right? I'm dealing with my own four, my four patches. Of, I got weeds and mushrooms and I got all sorts of problems. Okay? I don't think you want me talking to anyone about Jesus. Right? I'm pretty sure Jesus might not want me talking to anyone about him right now. My life's a mess. Well, here's a quote that I like sharing from some of the, the, the guy who leads our training and who leads the, the Cypress project that we do when we're training people. You are not representing your mess to other people. You are representing the grace of God at work in your mess. It's not about your mess. Because you are not an ambassador for your kingdom. You're an ambassador for his kingdom. It's not about you representing your mess. It's about you're, you're going to represent the grace of God that's at work in it. I can promise you every single person, every parent, grandparent, coworker, coach, teacher, church leader that was on the move by the kingdom in your life when you came to Christ, I guarantee you their life wasn't perfect. I guarantee you they were a mess. Did it matter? No. Because the movement of God, fueled by the kingdom of God, focused on you, brought you to faith in him. Brought you to faith in him. Don't you dare forget it. Don't you dare forget it. That you sit here as the church right now, we all do. We sit here as the church and we are the glorious result of the foundation, fuel, and focus of God. And he doesn't have it just planned for you and me. He has it planned for the people in our lives, in our circle, who are destined to be with him. And you may not know who they are. You may pray for a relative that never acknowledges God. 
but it doesn't stop you from praying. How long did it take, Julie, how long did it take your sister? 11 years? 11 years. Julie was praying for one of her top five. And 11 years of praying specifically, she came across the, the horizon. And God got to meet her. She got to taste and see how good the king is. Everybody with me? As a church, this is who we are. This is the foundation of everything we do. Is built around what does God want? And if God got what he wanted in your life, in this church, in our city, in our community, oh, how much glory would we be able to give the Father? But part of it is how we see the harvest, how we value the harvest, how we pray specifically for it, and if you're going to own your circle or not. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you today for the, just the convicting, challenging of Jesus' teaching of why so often we just struggle to see the harvest well. We struggle to give value the way you give value. We struggle to, to, we are so many more times more like the Pharisees than we are the shepherd. And so God, our prayer today is that moment by moment, decision by decision, your spirit is changing us differently. We're going to walk out of here differently today than we walked in because right now we're going to make some commitments to own our circle. And we're going to remember that we are not representing our mess, God. We are representing you at work in our mess. And God, we just need to trust you. We need to trust that when we engage the harvest, when we engage what you have your eyes fixed on, we are going to be a part of the movement of seeing you move in people's lives. We're going to be a part of seeing the kingdom come alive in people's lives. Oh, God, that's our prayer. That's our desire. In your name we pray.